Great. Well, we're going to gather around God's Word, and um, as I said earlier, this is a significant week, and whatever your view of monarchy and that institution, I think we can all agree that uh, Queen Elizabeth was an example to us in her selfish service and uh, extraordinary dedication and her faith. I was reading back through some of her um, Christmas addresses, being reminded just how she put her faith on display uh, to the nation. And I, I read this one and it just seemed to help for today's message. She said this in 2002, I know just how much I rely on my faith to guide me through the good times and the bad. Each day is a new beginning. I know that the only way to live my life is to try and do what is right to take the long view, to give of my best in all that the day brings, and to put my trust in God. I draw strength from the message of hope in the Christian gospel. Queen Elizabeth was a a woman who, those that were closest to her said the same as those that had never met her like myself, that she seemed to live what she said that she was a woman of faith and she lived that faith. It impacted actually how she lived her life. I want to speak into that this morning. So if you've got a Bible, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 1. We're actually going to be in a few different places. So get ready to kind of flick around a little bit um, because we're going to look at the discipleship journey this morning. Uh, As we finish our Encounters with Jesus series, And then uh, in two weeks' time, we're going to start looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I I wanted to look at the journey of someone who has really impacted me during this season of my life, and it's that of Simon who became Peter. Um, And I say he's impacted my life because uh, you need to bear with me a little bit because today could be a bit of a bumpy ride because I haven't done this for a while. Uh, Those of you that are part of the church will know that I've had a season out of uh, being in, uh, not out of being in leadership, but sort of hands-on leadership. Uh, Still been meeting with the elders and communicating things and just uh, seeking God for his vision. But um, the season uh, that we were in as a church and the pressures of this past season and my flawed ability at being able to cope with that resulted in uh, um, burnout and depression. And so I've had a season where I've just had to recover and I've just had to let God work in and through me uh, and and bring some restoration. And um, I would love to tell you, however many months that I've been away, that I am completely healed. That I'm back 150% the man that I was when I left. Can I tell you I'm not? I'm not. I'm not healed in the way that us Pentecostals like to think that it's just bigger and better and it's all amazing and it's all done and dusted and we move on. I'm not. There are some days where I don't feel like I have moved forward in any way, shape or form. But I can tell you through this season that I know God more than I ever thought I did. And I want to speak into that this morning. Because there's a journey that Jesus takes us on from where we start with belief, but then through a journey of experiences, we come to really know. And I know God to be more faithful than I can ever understand. I know God to be more gracious than I can ever exhaust. I know 
God to be more compassionate than I can possibly comprehend. I can honestly say I know God's love more now than I ever have done in my life. And as we sing songs about him bringing us safely to shore, my heart is being stirred and I'm stood here weeping because I know God to be that God more than I ever thought I possibly could. So we're going to look at the the journey of Peter and his discipleship journey this morning through five scenes. And the five scenes are these. I hope they come up because I haven't written them down. Uh, The five scenes are this. There we go. Thank goodness for that. Uh, The first scene is calling. The second scene is believing. The third scene is participating. The fourth scene is crisis. And the fifth scene is knowing. If I was a good preacher, they would all start with the same letter or they would all end in ing. I'm not a great preacher, so they don't. So you've got what you're given. Um, So let's just hope we end up somewhere. But scene number one, grab your Bibles. John chapter one, verse 35 It might be a familiar passage. I think we actually started our Encounters with Jesus series in this passage. So let me just read this to you. It says, The next day, John, this is John the Baptist, uh, was standing with the two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. See, John knows what it means to follow Jesus, that our lives should point to him, that we should direct everybody to Jesus. And so even those that have been following John the Baptist, he says, look, there's the one you need to follow, not me. There's the one you need to follow. So they start following Jesus. And it says, when Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his brother, Simon, and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So we have this amazing moment where John understands who Jesus is. He's the savior of the world. He's the Messiah. And he points his followers to Jesus. And so Andrew and this other disciple start to follow Jesus. Andrew is so caught up in the excitement of who this Messiah is that he has to go and tell someone. He has to. And so he runs to those that are closest to him, I imagine. Those that he loves the most, maybe. Those that he knows you need to know this. And he goes to his brother. And so Simon comes to Jesus And they have this bizarre moment. Do you ever read the Bible and realize, I need to actually stop and read what I'm reading rather than just accept what I'm reading because this is bizarre. Imagine meeting somebody for the first time. Hi, yeah, I'm John, nice to meet you. No, you're not gonna be John. That's not what I'm gonna call you. And what we see in this first encounter is Jesus nicknames Peter and says, I'm not gonna call you by what you've always been known. You are now Peter, not Simon. I mean, it's a bizarre moment, unless you realize that in the biblical narrative, a name carries more than simply what you call somebody. It's more than what you shout out when you're trying to call your kids in. It carries authority and it carries identity. It's like a CV, although not fully, but it's kind of like the description of who you are and what you've done and what you are called to do. And so in this moment, what we see is Jesus is calling Peter. He's saying, you've been known by this identity all your life. Well, I am transforming you. I am calling you. I'm giving you an authority, an identity. That's what happens in this moment for 
Peter. It's the season of his life. It's the scene that we're looking at of calling. But do you notice something? Do you notice that Peter in this moment, it says nothing about him following Jesus. It says that Jesus has called Peter, but it doesn't say anything about Peter then following. We think that what happens is when Jesus calls someone, they drop everything, they drop their nets, they leave everything immediately and start following Jesus. Not the case. Will be over a period of time, I think. But not in this moment. Jesus has called Peter But actually, we have to move to another scene in Peter's life where we see him actually follow Jesus. And it's scene number two that I want to move to is the believing scene in Peter's life. If we move to Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, it says, He was walking along the Sea of Galilee. This is Jesus walking along. He saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter. He's had this encounter with Jesus where he's been renamed. He's called Peter. And his brother, Andrew, They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Interesting. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So we have in in John chapter 1, Peter has this initial encounter with Jesus. Jesus renames him, gives him a, a purpose and a plan and identity over his life. But he doesn't follow Jesus. It takes this moment now when he's with Jesus. Some scholars believe four months may have passed between John chapter one, when what we read happens there, and what we see happening here now in Matthew chapter four. Four months. I find Peter's story so encouraging. Four months. Peter has had an encounter with Jesus where his life has been redefined. He's been given an identity and a purpose. If you read through as well, he's actually also witnessed Jesus heal his mother-in-law. No mother-in-law jokes. He has had these encounters with Jesus and yet what do we see of Peter? He goes back to being a fisherman. Jesus encounters him as a fisherman, redefines and rechanges his life, reveals who he is, and Peter continues going back to fishing. Peter consistently goes back to his old way of life. I find Peter so encouraging. For they were fishermen. We think that people need to transform and change their lives the minute they encounter Jesus, and it happens. It can be incredible. But it can also be a slow, long journey as Jesus reveals himself and reveals to us who we are. And it can be a time where we we can condemn those for going back to old ways of living, but Jesus doesn't condemn uh, Peter, he pursues him. And Peter continually goes back to his safety net, excuse the pun, of being a fisherman. Because for Peter, his fishing life is what he has created within his ability and his giftings. And it's what he can do where he can be enough without needing God. I can manage all of this. Any chaos or confusion that comes my way, I've got it sorted. I've got it covered. It's all okay. Because I can control this because this is what I can do. I know how to fish. So he always retreats to that place of safety. The discipleship journey is not nice, neat, up and to the right, belief and trust, transformation, growth and and fruit, as much as we Pentecostals like to think it is. It can be, but it's not always. 
It can falter and it can flounder and it can go back to a way of life, of safety, of control, of existence without God. I wonder if you can relate to that. But Peter encourages me because Jesus doesn't give up on Peter. He doesn't just let him go. I wonder if we can look back on our lives with honesty and admit that the invitations that God has sent our way, we've probably only accepted and acted on a very small fraction of them. There have been countless times in my life where I've turned away from an invitation. My own attitude has has got in the way of God's invitation in a moment because it's been uncomfortable. It's been, I don't want to do that, God. I don't want you to make me into the person you're calling me to be. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be loving in this, serve, in this situation. I don't want to be serving in this moment. I wonder if the queen had those moments privately. I wonder if you can relate. Peter has a visible, tangible, life-altering encounter with Jesus and then goes back to his old life. We see it even clearer in Luke chapter 5. Some scholars think this is yet another separate encounter with Jesus. So in Matthew 4, we've seen that Peter drops his nets and immediately follows Jesus. Yet here in Luke 4, we have another encounter. Maybe the same one, it may not be. What we do know is there's something different taking place because this time Jesus is in Peter's boat and he's teaching the crowd. And it says in in Luke uh, 4, uh, sorry, Luke 5, chapter 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Whether this is the same moment or a different moment, Peter continually goes back to fishing, continually goes back to his old way of life, and Jesus is pursuing him. And he says, let down your nets for a catch. What's Jesus saying to Peter in this moment? Let down your nets for a catch. What's he saying? He's saying, Peter, will you trust me? Peter, will you really trust me? Because you've returned to that safety and security of what you know, what you can control within your giftings, within your abilities. But will you trust me? Will you stop holding on to what you can control? Will you let it go and see what only I can do within that? And verse 5, Master Simon replied, um, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing, but if you say so, I will let down the nets. It's a battle to trust him. Church, it's a battle to trust Jesus in our lives. It really is. We want to return to that place of safety and security where we can control everything, we can manage all the problems, we can cope on our own. But it's in believing That's seen in Peter's life, believing that Jesus calls us to put out into the deep water of discipleship and let down those things that we create, those things we manufacture, those things we build upon ourselves and make other people think of ourselves. In order to get through, we've got to let it go and we've got to trust. It's the journey that we're taking as a church. It is. It's the journey that we're taking as a church. As we step in to seek God into what we sense he's calling us into, If God wasn't calling us into what we sense he's calling us into, let me be honest with you, we wouldn't do it. Because as the one that's uh, alongside the other elders and those in the church that are leading it, I don't want to do it. Because I've experienced personally how hard it is and the call that God places upon us. I don't want to do it, but God is calling us. And so anything short of following him is disobedience. And he's calling us to, to, to be a people 
that can learn how to live a life of love. To display it to each other so the world would see by our love who we are, that we're his followers. That through that, we can reach some of the 130,000 people that live on Stratford-upon-Avon. Because you sitting comfortably in here, listening to a sermon each week, ain't going to make it happen. As much as you like to hear it, as much as it makes you feel good, because you've learned something, and you can go away thinking, oh, I'm closer to Jesus now because I know something new about him. It ain't going to reach people. Now, maybe it's because I'm getting a little bit older, maybe because I've been through a season where I'm like, God, I've given everything, and it wrecked me. Maybe I'm just going to be a little bit more honest in this season. I'm just being who God is calling me to be. And he's calling us to multiply communities of people that can learn to love each other well, not just theorize about it on a, on a, on a screen, not just talk about it in nice, neat rows. Oh, community, it's great. No, we actually live it. And it means it's hard. It means we disagree with each other. It means we've got to learn how to love each other. And we're going to equip individuals that have a first-hand life with God and we're going to be in a space to release people into their giftings, to build the church and to reach the lost. We are not copying the latest church model of how to grow church, which is why we find ourselves making mistakes as we go along. Some things work and some things don't because nobody's written the roadmap of how to do it. We're learning how to hear God and discern his voice and step into it. And it's exciting it's full of hope but we have to trust that quote that I read from the queen I know that the only way to live my life is to try and do what is right can I just ask you listen to a woman of wisdom who spent a lifetime 90 plus years following Jesus I know that the only way to live my life is to try and do what is right to take the long view to give of my best in all that the day brings and what to put my trust in God we're in a season of trusting God. We're in a season where we have to trust him. Brennan Manning, one of my favorite authors, um, he writes a book called Ruthless Trust. And in that, he's having a conversation with his spiritual director. And he's, he's venting about the fact that he doesn't feel like he's engaging, encountering more of Jesus. He, he wants to know more of Jesus and, and have a fresh encounter. And his spiritual director says this, Brennan, you do not need any more insights into the faith. You've got enough insights to last you 300 years. The most urgent need in your life is to trust what you have already received. To trust when all we want to do is give up safety and security. To trust when we have to give up all that we've manufactured and controlled in order to give God the space. It's the season that I've been in. Because when we do Instead of being up all night, fretting, trying, sweating, trying to make it happen, and can I be honest, we've done that too. What we actually see is verse six, when they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear. We have a calling and God is pursuing us in the person of Jesus by his spirit to become a people that believe. And the third scene we see in Peter's journey is that of participating, participating with Jesus. It's what uh, discipleship models and formation models would call the productive stage. It's when we're busy doing the stuff of the kingdom and it feels great. It's not, it's not like we're busy because it's hard. We're busy because we're like, God, you're using me and look, I can see the fruit and it's exciting. 
And it, it, it's a moment where we think, God, you're using me in spite of me. You've journeyed with me. And look, isn't it phenomenal? I'm sure those of you that have journeyed with Jesus for any length of time, you can remember seasons in your life like that. It's not just one block season in the middle of your life. We cycle through these. And you'll go through seasons where you're in the productive stage, participating with Jesus. But then if you're anything like me, you get called back to that believing stage. You're like, man, I, I need to come back because I don't know anything. And then we hear him call us again. But in this season in Peter's life, he's participating in the ministry of Jesus. This is where the Gospels all overlap with each other, so I'm not going to zone in on one specific passage, but you'll know many of them. He's overseeing the prayer ministry of Jesus at the end of his sermons. He's explaining to a mother what happens as Jesus heals her blind son. He's collecting the leftovers at the end of the feeding of the 5,000. He's stepping out of the boat and walking on the water with Jesus. It's an exciting time in Peter's life. It's an exciting time when we start to serve in the kingdom of God. And we start to see God using us. Often the temptation of the productive stage is to think that we've made it. We know it all. We've got it all sorted. God's working in and through me. And the proof of that, the, the proof that God is working in and through me shows that I know it all. And we don't say that. But it can be subtle. And we think that mature, good disciples are those that are in this stage. And this is the, 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 the apex of discipleship. But it's not. And it's not that we move past this stage and just stop serving. But actually our motivation and our identity that's found in that serving makes, takes a massive change. Jesus has taken us and uses us, but that productive stage is not the arrival. It's a part where God is journeying with us. And eventually we will leave this stage we're likely to return to it because it's not linear, it's fluid, it's organic, we're human, we're in relationship. But can I tell you, leaving the productive stage is never by choice. We only ever leave it by crisis. Or what feels like a crisis, but actually it's an invitation from God to a deeper intimacy than we ever realized we could have. And unless we know what God is doing in this season, where crisis comes across our path, we will be tempted to start believing something about God or something about ourselves that simply isn't true. And so we move to the fourth scene in Peter's life. For Peter, his crisis is a very public failure. And it starts, I think it starts on a conversation that Jesus starts to shift. Jesus stops speaking about the kingdom of God and he starts speaking about the cross that he's going to have to go to. And in Matthew 16, 21, we see a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And he says, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. Now look at Peter, full of, 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 of passion for God and the things of God and being used by God and seeing things going bigger and better. And he says, Peter looked at him and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Again, a moment where you've got to stop and realize, not just to gloss over what the scriptures are telling us. Peter has just rebuked Jesus. There's the Messiah, Peter. I'm rebuking you. You're not, what you're saying is not true. And what we see is Jesus tells Peter, fair and square, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Peter, who has just been declared a few verses before this, that he's going to be the rock on which they build, has now become the rock on which he stumbles over. 
Peter makes a mistake, a very visible one in front of his closest friends. And then it all starts to come to a head on the final night of Jesus' life as he speaks about his death. And Peter makes this very bold claim. I'm very careful about what I claim now. Very careful about what I say I believe. Let me explain why. Matthew 26, 33, Peter told him, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will, I will never fall away. Amazing what we declare for Jesus. I will never fall away. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Well, the night comes. Jesus is arrested and he's taken off to the courts. And Peter follows and he follows at a distance. I think he knows what's happening, but he's fearful and wants to see how things play out. And Peter gets as close as the courtyard and he sits down in front of a charcoal fire. And as he sits there, Jesus is on trial. This girl comes up to him and says, you're with the guy on trial, aren't you? He's like, no idea what you're talking about. Don't know him. Don't know him at all. And then another witness comes forward and the girl says, no, you are. What she says is true. You are with him. And a third time Peter says, no, I don't know who you're talking about. I'm just sat here trying to keep warm. And obviously the crowd are beginning to hear this because then it says the crowd come on in and the crowd say, no, we know who you are. You're a follower of Jesus. And a third time Peter denies Jesus. Peter is on court. Uh, Jesus is on trial in the court. Peter is on trial in the courtyard. Jesus will remain faithful throughout, but Peter will fall faithless. Even though he's just declared, I will never deny you. Luke twenty-two sixty says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. The crowd have accused him. I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know what you think I am or who you think I am. But immediately while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord and said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside bitterly and wept. There's a crisis in Peter's life. Failure. So often crisis, we think it means the end. Scott, that's it, it's done, done and dusted. If I'm being honest with you, there's moments in this past season where I thought that was the end, that's it. If I can be really honest with you, there's moments where I thought I want to make it the end. You don't hear church leaders speaking to that very often. But it's a dark day when you're lying in your bed because you can't get out of bed and you think, the best thing for me to do would be park my car on a train track because then at least my family would get the car insurance and the life insurance. Crisis can convince us that it's the end. Crisis will try and completely wipe us out. But you know what I've learned about crisis? It's a gift. Crisis is a gift. Now, not all gifts we want, but they are helpful. When I was 30 years old, I turned 30, the big 3-0, I'm an adult at last, Kind of felt like, you know, you're out your 20s, you're in your 30s, married, going to have children, going to get some nice gifts. It's a big zero one. Going to get some really good gifts. Do you know what I got for my 30th birthday? A slow cooker. <laughs> some gifts you don't want, but they are helpful. 
the gift of a crisis when the doctor calls with a diagnosis, when someone walks out on you that's close to you, when you lose someone that's close to you, when you don't get the dream job, when someone you trust lets you down, when a spouse walks out, crisis, it can come in so many different forms, and your crisis may not be what other people deem a crisis, but it's something in your life that comes against you and rocks your world. In the productive stage, we make declarations that are like fuel to the fire. Peter uh, will have heard Jesus say, whoever denies me before the Father, uh, whoever denies me, I will deny before the Father. In the productive stage, Peter's like, yes, come on, preach it, make them feel bad about themselves, come on, we're going to keep the faith. But in the crisis, suddenly you realize I'm not sure I can be the person that I intended to become. Because the crisis rocks you, but it is a gift. Because there is nothing like a crisis to reveal what you truly believe. God, why did you let that happen? In other words, what I believe is that you've let me down. God, I'm not sure you really care about me. So what I really believe is I'm not sure you're trustworthy. God, are you even there? What I believe is that you're absent. There's nothing like a crisis to reveal our lived belief. And this is why for me, gospel communities are so significant to our church. Because we can say in the comfort of a church what we think we believe, but when we start to live it out, it reveals what we actually believe. And there's nothing like walking alongside other people in close community where we're accountable to each other, where we're seeking to love each other, to reveal what we actually believe, to journey through crisis with one another. So why crisis works in our discipleship journey like nothing else because without crisis, we will be satisfied that what we say we believe, we actually believe. Peter, I will go with you to prison. I'll die with you if I have to. I think he genuinely believed that. Of course he did in that moment. But the crisis revealed what he actually believed. I don't even know that man. Self-preservation, gotta, just got to keep everything good and comfortable and happy. This moment for Peter has been with me for the past few months. And the more I've held this moment in my crisis, the more I've had to get honest with Jesus because I want to encourage you and say, maybe you're in a crisis, maybe you've been through a crisis and this is helping you frame it. Maybe you will go through a crisis. Can I tell you, in the midst of the crisis, Jesus is with you. Look at this. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. In the middle of the crisis, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. What's the expression on Jesus' face? Some of you may need to spend some months in silence, in solitude, praying this through. I have and I am. What is the expression on Jesus' face in that moment? Jesus turns and sees. Put yourself in Peter's place. If you get some time over the coming months... Just close your eyes, put yourself in Peter's place. The moment of your biggest failure, what is the look on Jesus' face? Maybe you can't think of a time of failure. Okay, I heard this question recently that brought it really home. What part of your life would you be most ashamed of Jesus seeing? Jesus is looking at you. What's the expression on his face? How you answer that question shapes everything about what you believe about the heart of God. 
And I, I'm singing worship songs this morning like I've not sung them before because I am beginning to see what I thought I believed was on Jesus' face because I've been brought up in church for years to tell him he's a loving God. I'm like, yes, he is. But I've been through an experience where I can say he is a loving God. Oh, he's faithful. Yeah, I, knew, I know he's faithful. He is a faithful God. But what's the look on his face for you? Is it stern? Is it disappointed? Annoyed, frustrated, angry, compassionate, gracious, loving? Can you genuinely say that the love on Jesus' face when he looks at Peter is the look of love that says, you are my beloved? In the midst of everything you've just done, not living up to who I've called you to be, not living up to who you said you would be, I love you more than you can possibly imagine. Will you receive and let me love you? It's the journey of discipleship. See, Peter was willing to drop his nets because his heart was captured by Jesus who invited him into the one of the most ancient stories we have found the Messiah. And he is passionate and gives his all but then his story turns to tears in the moment of crisis because he couldn't live out what he said he believed. But this moment, in the first way that he has that encounter with Jesus and his name is transformed, in this moment of crisis, Peter's heart is transformed. It's the journey of discipleship. And that's when we move to the fifth stage. I'm going to miss some stuff out because of time. I've got like 50 notes. This is the danger when someone's not preached for a while. I've got a lot to say. But we're going to miss all that out. Scene five. Knowing. Just a brief note on knowing. Because I think we have a, an understanding of the word knowledge that scripture uses. There's a difference between knowledge and knowing in the scriptures. It is a different word. Uh, knowledge is about a, 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 a kind of an under, a vague understanding of. But knowing, knowing is different. Knowing is an intimate word. We, we say in church, don't we? Oh, let the, let the knowledge drop 12 inches from your head to your heart. That's not a biblical perspective of knowing. Because knowing is head and heart. It's all of us. Every single fiber of our being knows this to be true. The word in, in the scripture of knowing is a, is a Hebrew idiom for sexual intercourse. It's that much knowing. So intimate in our knowing. So when I say knowing, that's what I mean. Let's just see how that plays out in Peter's story. And I'm finishing here. Scene five. John 21 verse 2 says, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's sons and the two other disciples were, were together. This is after the, the death. They've, they've probably heard about rumors of the resurrection, but they haven't encountered Jesus yet. They haven't seen him yet. So is it rumors? Is it a myth? Is it real? And where do we find Peter? Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. I'm going to retreat safety, security, comfort, everything I can control. That's where I'm going. Thank you, Peter. I need you in the scriptures. But Jesus is pursuing him. In fact, all of heaven is pursuing him. Because think back when Jesus rises and the angel meets uh, is it Mary at the tomb and says, uh, go and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen, especially Peter. Everybody's pursuing Peter. In verse four, it says, when daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called them. Do you have any fish? No, they answered. Apparently, Peter was a really rubbish fisherman. Uh, Cast your nets on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Do you recognize this moment? You should do, because we've just talked about it. Three years previously, on exactly the same beach, 
to exactly the same people on exactly the same water, probably in exactly the same boat, Jesus does exactly the same miracle. Yet this time it's completely different. This time everything's changed. Because this time it's about intimately knowing who Jesus is because of the journey that Peter's been on. You see, we close the gap between believing and knowing because of our experience. And our experience informs what we believe because we know it to be true. And Peter, in this moment, will experience and know something about Jesus. This is not just a moment of calling, of believing, of participating. This is a moment of resurrection. This is a moment of redeeming. This is a moment of encountering Jesus. And he says, the disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, is it you, Lord? When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied out his outer clothing around him before he'd taken it off, and he plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about 100 yards, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. Sometimes uh, you may have heard this being preached that it's like Peter's so desperate to get to Jesus. Oh, it's Jesus. He was once dead. He's now alive. Let's get to Jesus. Come on. I'm not so sure. Because let's remember these are real people. And the last time he saw Jesus, the last time he looked in Jesus' eyes, he just denied him. I wonder if Peter's anything like me if he's riddled with anxiety. If he's getting out that boat to get to Jesus before all the other disciples, because he knows what he last did when he saw Jesus. I've got to get to him before everybody else, because I don't know if what awaits me is condemnation or compassion. I've got to get to Jesus. And so he jumps out of the boat and he runs to Jesus. And when they got to the land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. It's a really powerful moment. They say that um, the memory, one of the strongest things that triggers our memory is our scent. You can, that's why you can smell some perfume and it reminds you of your late mother. Or you can have a memory that's suddenly evoked because you smell something. Jesus is creating a moment here for Peter to remember as he smells a charcoal fire. The last time he was around a fire, he denied Jesus three times. It says in verse 15, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? There's going to be a restoration. Three times he denied Jesus around a fire. Three times now Jesus will commission him around a fire. Creating this moment. Do you notice in this moment that Jesus refers to, uh, uh, no, let me come back to that. Do you love me more than these? I told you I'm a bit out of practice. Just a bumpy landing, all right? It's a bit of turbulence on the way towards the landing. And it's going to take a long time to land, just to, just to warn you. <laughs> Do you love me more than these? I've spent a bit of time thinking, what are the these that Jesus is talking about? The these. Do you love me more than these other disciples, some commentators would say? I struggle with that because it, it seems like Jesus then sets them up against each other. What you've got to remember is that Peter's just been out fishing. They've caught 153 fish. Fish is the place that, Jesus, uh, that Peter returns to and retreats to as safety and security that he can control. Do you love me more than these? I wonder if Jesus is referring to the fish. Do you love me more than your ability to cope, your ability to control? Do you, lo- do you trust me? Do you love me more than these? You keep returning there, Peter. You keep going back to that place of safety because it's a security net. Do you love me more than the safety and the security that you run to because it was never designed to give you what I alone can provide? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. It's the commissioning. A second time, 
He said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. Do you notice that he's calling him Simon? I've gone back to calling him Simon. I wonder if Jesus is saying, you are Peter, but I've seen you when you couldn't live up to the calling that I put on your life. You are Peter, but I've seen you in your greatest moment of shame. And I still love you. And I still call you. And I still commission you. Jesus is masterfully creating a moment to reveal Peter's shame. But what he says in that moment is, I've seen you in your shame. And I love you. And I call you my own. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he'd asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know it all now. It's all been laid bare because I've been through this journey where you've called me, where I believe, where I thought I knew you and thought you knew me and it was all major exciting. It was bigger and better and now I've been through this crisis and now you know everything. You know it all. You've seen when I could live to be who you thought I could be and when I failed. You know it all and I love you feed my sheep Jesus says I wonder if we can start to believe that the crisis isn't the end that the crisis isn't what defines us the crisis can be redeemed by Jesus and used an invitation to a deeper intimacy than we ever thought possible see I always think that Peter believed in the grace of God I I genuinely think he did I, be, I believe that he knew, the, he, he believed in the grace of God, but by this point, he's now encountered it. He's now experienced it, and he knows it. Job would say it like this, as he went after crisis after crisis, he would say, oh, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. See, a lot of people have spoken about legacy with the queen's passing, and her legacy will live on. Peter has a legacy. And I don't think Peter's legacy is that he was an apostle that saw the resurrected Jesus, that he's amazing faith to write all these letters to the church. I don't think that's Peter's legacy. It's not his great faith. Peter's greatest legacy is God's grace. It's him allowing God to see him in his broken, shameful state and accept the love that was offered to him. Will you accept the love that is offered you when all you can see in your own life is your brokenness? your sin, your shame, everything that God should hate, will you accept his love? That's why Peter, years later, will be able to write to the church, fully believing, fully knowing that love covers a multitude of sins. Alan, will you come up and play? I'm finishing here, and I'd love to pray with anyone that wants to, but we're going to finish, and um, some can stay and sing, others can... Maybe go and grab another coffee if that's what we do. I can't remember what we do now. But there's an ancient form of Japanese art. Some of you will have heard it. It's called kintsugi. This is a kintsugi bowl. And what they do with kintsugi is um, they take something that's been broken, some pottery that's been smashed, and they make it whole again by pouring gold into the cracks to seal it back up again. And the artist that started this believes that when something suffers damage, it carries a history and a story that makes it more beautiful than it ever could have been if it hadn't been damaged in the first place. 
And so they take all the broken bits of pottery, some of them tiny little shards and painstakingly put them back together. Because the artist believes that this broken piece of pottery can be worth something. What most people would throw away, that artist pieces back together to make it even more beautiful. Church, that is the kind of creative, redemptive, restoring artist that God is. The most ugly parts of ourselves, where we've spent years trying to cope on our own with our own coping mechanisms and then we crumble under the weight of it. When circumstances come against us and we realize the safety net, the security, it's not doing what I need it to do. When we flee our own country because everywhere we thought was safe suddenly gets invaded and we find ourselves somewhere completely different in a foreign land. God can redeem the broken parts and he restores. And we can simply believe that and it's poetic and it's something to give God thanks for. But if you let your experience teach you the reality of who God is then that becomes transformational who God is and what he can do it changes how we live I'm not 100% healed but I'm not the man I used to be because God is a redemptive restoring, resurrecting God and I've got to live with that hope and I've got to trust him and church we can sit in here and get new insights about God until the cows come home Church, we do not need new insights about God. We've got enough insights about God to last us 300 years. What we need to do is trust what we've already received. Start to live in it and live out of it. Start to declare his glory, his goodness. Start to to pour back out his love when we receive whatever it is we receive in this world. When someone's negative to us, we pour out his goodness and his love. When someone pours out all their shame and they vomit all over us, we go, here's God's love. When things aren't going the way we want them to do because they need to go like this because this is how it works, God. We go, we trust you, God, because we receive and we trust what we already know to be true. I was doubting whether I should share this this morning and I, honestly, I'm done. I've gone over by time, so I'm sorry I'm stealing time off you now. But I was doubting this morning whether I would preach this. I'm going to see if I can get it up. I got another sermon that was on the back burner that I might have preached. Um, Let me bring it up. But this is what I read this morning from a friend of mine who does a blog every day. And he wrote this. The seasons of great difficulty when you are grieving, when it appears you are losing, when the battle is intense and you feel like you will give in, are proving only one thing, that if you hold on, if you keep what you confess and do not cover up who you are, you will not only survive, but you will prove that you are real and trustworthy because it's God working in and through you. Let's trust what we already know to be true about God. If you'd like someone to pray with you, I would love to pray. And there's others in the church that can pray with you. 
might want to stand here. You might just want to sit in the silence as Alan just leads us in a final song and just let God minister to you. It's perfectly fine. But now is an opportunity if you want to respond. We'd love to pray with you. Let me just read this prayer as we finish. I prayed it earlier. I pray it again now. I pray that he may grant you according to his riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through the Spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever